Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in the United States and worldwide, it's all been about elevated volatility. Is that elevated volatility technical or is it a change in perceptions of risk worldwide in financial markets? I'm pleased to say that we're joined by a fantastic guest on Bloomberg Radio. It's Mike Wilson, the Morgan Stanley Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and the CIO for Morgan Stanley. Mike, always great to catch up with you. What a week so far. It's a little bit of action. We haven't had that in a while. Uh, it's actually refreshing in many ways because it's been so stagnant for so long. We're now kind of shaking the trees a little bit, and I think the big question folks are asking is this just a correction in an overbought market, or is there actually a regime shift happening beneath the surface? And we think it's a bit of both. So walk me through why you see indications of, re- of a regime shift at this point when a lot of people come on this show and say what we've seen in the last few days is purely technical yeah. and not fundamental. The reason why is because of sequencing, right? So if you, th- I mean, the vol shock happened really Monday and Tuesday, Monday overnight, as a result of the, the the correction we had last the week prior, and the, if you if you're really objective about it, the reason we had a correction a week prior was because rates kind of broke through some levels where it started to affect valuations in the equity market, and that was the real kickoff move. So you have to ask yourself, why did that valuation uh, gap down happen? It happened because we finally reached a point where rates are now potentially a gating factor on this nirvana equity bull market we've been in. Do you see volatility normalizing? What is normal right now? Certainly, sub 10 wasn't normal. So so what is normal and what are we going back to? Well, normal is 14 uh, on the U.S. equity market. And we've been, you know, as you said, sub 10. So uh, we're making we're going to make our way back to 14. I don't think there's any doubt that the, the real question is, what's the path? And do we need to overshoot 14 for a while. You know, everybody talks about the Fed now talking about they're going to overshoot their target on inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why can't we overshoot the target on volatility too? I mean, this is these are moving pieces. You know, it's, it's interesting. Everybody, you know, always likes to point to the Fed. You know, it's the Fed's fault, this, that, and the other. You know, markets are dynamic. And, uh, you know, I would say that market participants are as, you know, guilty of, you know, markets overshooting is, you know, they have to take the bait, right? They have to go there. So there was a big strategy last year and it was the short vol strategy. And I want to ask you whether you think that actually contributed towards lower volatility. And now those products cease to exist, whether it also means that actually we can expect higher volatility because we won't have these products there suppressing it. Just walk me through those two points. Yeah. So look, first of all, you have to understand why is why has volatility been low? There was a you know a call last year some people were making back in August that the markets were really complacent and vols too is too low. And we we just actually disagreed with it at that time because vols low for the last several years for fundamental reasons. The fundamental reasons are we have a synchronous global recovery. Yep. There's no part in the world that's seeing you know deteriorating economic conditions. We have the lowest earnings estimate dispersion we've seen in 40 years. So if there's no estimate dispersion, then why should there be volatility in the, in the marketplace? So it's, it was fundamentally driven. And then, of course, you know, people get a little too carried away with it and they start trying to make money on that trend. It's a trend following. And so we then saw structured products and notes and things that tied into this low volatility targeting strategy, not to mention risk parity and variable annuities, which target that as well. And, and then, of course, we had a catalyst uh, with rates moving up and all of that came crashing down. And that's and that's always what happens. Good morning, Tom Keane. Good morning. Watching Sterling. I'm very happy that our co-anchors joined us um, in the studio. Well, I had to, you know, 
take my entourage and of course, get them into from, the control from TV room. to radio. You know, the entourage is very difficult to get into the radio control room. Richard Truman's there. And <laughs> they're holding Feliu. the doors open for they you. They hold the doors is open. That, is that what they do? You know, okay. be sure I get a Jamila, which is... Somebody <laughs> said, what's a Jamila? A Jamila is this gorgeous hot tea with honey and yeah. lemon. Also the name of one of your producers, I think, as well. But it's Tom. just a Jamila. I mean, you know, and, and it is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, uh, it's gotten me seriously. It's gotten me through the last uh, two weeks. Look at Sterling. Uh, yeah, big uh, move. One forty handle. Yeah, big move. Um, Twenty one glasses. I think I think, I think the communication from the Bank of England is pretty yeah. clear, isn't it? We need another rate hike. Get ready for one. <clears throat> Most people yeah. pricing that in for May of this year, Tom. If, if you told me twelve months ago we'd get two hikes in the space of a year, well, I, I might have laughed. At but you. if it, that we would get to one forty Sterling, nobody believed that. No, we were in I mean, the low one twenties. Just 12 months Jeffrey, ago. you killed that. Hans Redeker, I believe, did a great job at Morgan Stanley on that, too. And and yet here we are. Mike Wilson, uh, this talks about what we heard from Mervyn King, Rick Mishkin, Robert Kaplan, and Axel Weber, is there seem to be limited degrees of freedom when you get this kind of volatility. Is that true that the choices that bankers and institutions could make get gummed up when you have volatility or is volatility ultimately actually a good thing for Chairman Powell? Well, I, I, look, it, it definitely brings clarity. Like we're we're in price discovery mode now, right? We know. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and 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 that, and so that's why there's no leadership. You know, what the most interesting development in the last, I think, forty eight hours is not getting enough press is that we we have not seen any shift in leadership either way in the right. decline. It's been across the board, and that's very unusual because typically when you have a a risk off event like this. Usually what happens is the market goes after where the portfolios are exposed. So you would think the momentum would have been hurt. It didn't. Momentum is actually held in okay. Yeah, agreed. And so we haven't had the portfolio disruption yet. I think that's to come. I think we're going to have portfolio disruption now in the next couple of weeks, which is going to actually force people's hands. Right. One thing that we've uh, seen in our data is even though we had this vol shock and some people monetized a few puts that were out there, put put buying is not picked up, meaning People are still not hedged. They're still buying the story of well, they're not necessarily late. buying it, but they're not yeah. selling it either. So that we have not seen people hedge. We have not <clears> seen <throat> people reduce their portfolio exposures because they haven't been punished for it yet. So what's going to happen in the next two weeks is the market's going to figure out: is this a regime shift that I need to worry about yeah. from a structural standpoint, or is this just a temporary pause? We think it's more of the latter. But then we need new, right. new we need new leadership to emerge, and that's what's that's what yeah. we're really watching in the next two weeks. Futures up uh, negative five, rather futures negative five. Uh, the VIX. 28.67. I was just going to say, John Farrell, price discovery, as Mr. Wilson uses it, yeah. price discovery is what happens when you get a puppy. You get price <laughs> discovery. Back, we come back to the vet bill you again. You get vet bill. <laughs> I get, let's start with cleaning the carpets Well, let's start alone. With, let's start with, with vet bill. Let's start with clearing price markets discovery. A, a little bit. Mike Wilson, typically the volatility curve, the VIX curve, steepens the further you go out and that's quite intuitive the further you go out the more uncertain things are therefore implied volatility should be higher in the future what we have right now is complete opposite so at the front end you have an inverted curve pretty much so the term structure looks very very weird on the vix right now and i'm trying to understand when that's going to shake out and how long it takes to shake out so we talked about this earlier it, it takes a couple of weeks typically so when you once you see the inversion of the of the vix curve that's a good sign. That means that risk is getting repriced. Uh, and we've seen that. Let me give you, give you, and also I'll put it in equity terms, which is very simple to understand. Please we, do. We peaked at uh, PEs uh, in December, right when the tax bill passed at 18.5 times forward 12. 
Uh, in the overnight session, uh, Monday night, we got down to 16 times. All right. That's a pretty healthy reset on price, price discovery. Okay. I think 16 times is probably too cheap. Uh, that doesn't mean we're not going to go back down there and retest that level. The VIX curve inversion is, is part of that price discovery process too. People are saying, I don't mm -hmm. know where we're going to sell out. So let me protect myself. I'm going to pay up for vol in the short term if I want to buy puts. And, and the market is very confused. So we suspect that curve will flatten out over the next two weeks. It typically does, unless mm -hmm. there's something systemic going on, which we do not think. To is a going new, on. higher, elevated level. Correct. So you're going to get, the, it'll flatten, but it'll stay at a higher uh, realized level than what we've been uh, what we've been at. Mike Wilson, generous of your time this morning. He is with Mr. Gorman's Morgan Stanley. What a joy to speak with Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners. Uh, Doug, one of the great uh, uh, things we've been doing here in surveillance, Mervyn King yesterday, Rick Mishkin of Columbia, and then today uh, President Kaplan of Dallas, and then Axel Weber of UBS. And within all that, there's certain moments, Doug, as you know, it's, it's not like the whole conversation. You get this one little phrase. And Axel Weber talked about his worry of market-based finance. It's not 1998, it's not 2007, 2008. There were other issues then, leverage example, lack of uh, huge exposure by banks. But Axel Weber now talking about market-based finance, and that brings us over to this risk parity idea. Doug Cass, what is risk parity? Uh, risk parity is an attempt to maximize return and minimize risk by um, placing bets on different asset classes, typically placing a bet on the relationship between bonds and stocks. Um, and when that relationship um, uh, goes off where, where yeah. it's been historically, um, there is a tendency, a need to deleverage and to cover short volatility positions. And to be clear, away from the VIX trade, the general fixed income risk parity trade has been working like a charm for many, many quarters, hasn't it? Right. And all of a sudden, it's it's reversed. And we saw stocks go down at the same time bond prices right. went down and yields went up. You know, it seems to me that that, that January and early Feb February will be looked at as a seminal point in time with regard to these instruments. Uh, I think in January we experienced peak hubris, and we had this mincy right. moment in VIX. <clears throat> all, all and, oh, go ahead. And the market was basically underpricing risk. Uh, it was building up excesses in a low vol setting, and we knocked on the okay. door of euphoria last month. Here is the key question then, Douglas Cass, and you know this because you've been there. You have a structure, things change, and you have to re-hedge within moving markets. That really right. hasn't been tested yet, has it? No, it was tested Friday, which will likely go down, uh, to paraphrase Don McLean in his song American Pie, the day the short volatility trade died. Okay, but there's other asset classes where we really haven't tested it yet, right? That's correct. It tends... You know, we're, we're in, as Friedman, Tom Friedman says, we're in this flat and interconnected world. So all asset classes have, have a correlation of one these days. So it seeps into different right. asset classes. <clears throat> and the system is so leveraged 
that de-risking occurs and what they were buying, they sell in this shocking environment, like with portfolio insurance, where buyers buy high and sellers sell low. But if you go to the basic idea, and I'm quoting here from the American philosopher John Tucker, if you have faith in God above, if the Bible tells you so, I'm kidding, folks, it's from American Pie, but the faith in interest rate Look, parity. Chevy to the levy, but yeah, the levy yeah, was dry. Except these guys aren't driving Chevys, they've been driving Bentleys because they've been making a lot of money, Doug Cass. And the right. Bible and here, the you know, whoever I'm talking to, folks, whether it's Nassim Taleb or Douglas Cass, there's a Bible of belief. What's going to go right. wrong with that Bible of belief when we see a 30-year bond at a 330 or a 10-year yield pops 3.4, 3.04? Who knows? But but what's going to happen to that I, I would Bible? Tell you that we'll, we'll be in trouble at that point because um, very quietly, corporate America has leveraged up. And we know the problem of the public sector because, you know, to paraphrase Howard Marks, we've lost fiscal discipline with the tax bill. Um, The interesting thing to me is that um, um, we we may be entering what I describe as portfolio insurance part two, uh, last seen in October 1987. And perhaps that should be our trading template over the near term. In other words, if history rhymes, we look at what happened to equity back in October and November and December of 1987. I do know when S&P futures dropped by 55 handles on no news, as it did in the last 25 minutes of trading yesterday, you know we have a problem. And I would say that there are a lot of people, you know, the question is, is was Monday and Tuesday, as it relates to a, uh, an unwinding of the short VIX trade, mm-hmm. was that a dress rehearsal? And I would just say that last November, Bank of America estimated that there was over over $1.5 trillion linked to volatility-linked strategies. Right. Um, you know, risk parity, you mentioned, yep. vol trending, vol targeting, CTAs. So if it took nearly a decade for the number of ETFs and ETNs to outnumber the amount of publicly traded companies on the exchanges, and it took nearly a decade for the quant strategies um, to surpass uh, active investing, something makes me think that this seismic shift in the market and a $1.5 trillion invested in volatility-linked strategies that took 10 years in the making to develop is not going to end in three trading sessions. Doug, what's so important here, and this alludes again to Dr. Weber of UBS's important comments today on market-based finance and what I'm calling the shadow VIX economy, and by economy I mean just the trading economy. Doug Cass, do you have a real worry about over-the-counter structures away from visible ETFs and other prospectus items that when we go, we don't know they're there right now. We're going to discover this real quickly. Yeah. I remember when, you know, I, I, I have been outspoken about the market's vulnerability to these volatility link strategies for about a year. I remember doing the same thing about CDOs in, in 2007. And no one was concerned. And uh, the the general consensus view that was that there would be no contagion. And look what happened. These instruments virtually crippled and bankrupted the yeah. world's financial system. So we don't know what's out there. No, we don't. What, what are you going to do now? You say you're 80% in cash. You're just sort of enjoying What I'm going to do is, to, to, to quote Larry David, I'm trying to elevate small talk to medium talk. 
You should be concerned about these instruments. Okay. You should use volatility opportunistically. If you want to, right. if you're short and you buy, you know, and stocks are violently you know, lower, you should be covering. And if you're a value investor, you should buying, be buying what you like during these periods of disequilibrium. But they're pri- probably going to continue for a long time. You look at what happened in 1987 after right. the portfolio insurance crash. There was a test. You know, you had turnaround Tuesday after Monday's big schmicing. Uh, you had a day rally. And then you had a test the following week, yep. and then back in there, and it rallied, and then you had another test, the final successful test, yep. in early December. So I think you're going to you're gonna basically follow the same pattern. Doug Cass, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Seabreeze Partners, some perspective they're using with the, a tinge of history. Love to hear from all of our listeners. David emails in. He says, Tom, not enough Tar Heels Duke basketball discussion. Pim, we've been remiss. Okay. We're not talking Tar Heels and Duke. I'll see what I can we do. We gotta find the nearest approximation to that, which Maybe would be Paul, Paul Sweeney. Sweeney. Yes, right. Duke, I mean it's tonight, eight PM tonight, Chop- right? Yep, in Chapel Hill, so it should be another great game. But uh The Dukes are doing better this year. You're doing better? They're doing very well, but they're very young. Lots and lots of freshmen, lots of one and done, so Coach Gay has to, you know, make them into a team by March and that's his that's what he has to do. But every we're year getting now. right towards March Madness. Yep. It's February and like like Duke's doing better. Virginia's killing it. Yeah, right? Virginia's great. Virginia beat Duke. Uh, Duke lost to St. John's last weekend, and then St. John's beat number one Villanova. Yeah. So it's been. Uh, so there we go. Yeah. Um, so Jay, that, David, if you're listening, me. that's it. We're doing yeah. no more basketball talk. We don't care about the Tar Heels. We don't care about Whoa. Duke. David, you are so old news. <laughs> but you read this on Twitter, and I looked at their press release. It was almost an adult press release, wasn't it? Yeah, and they actually made gap uh, earnings for the for the first time. So yeah. Uh, yeah so I think you know uh, we got a re- 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 relief rally here. The stock's been beaten down. Now we see some green shoots that maybe uh, some of the changes they've made to the company to the offering. Right. You know, might be you know resonating with with their users and with advertisers. Paul Sweeney, you run all of Bloomberg Intelligence. You and your entire team and me, we know they don't have mass. They don't have scale. They got lousy revenue growth. Did I read a press release today which is basically ship shaping them to be a taken out? Uh, possible, but it's going to be much more expensive than it was, uh, you know, three to six, six months ago. But I think, you know, what they've got going for them now, to the extent that somebody wants 350 million uh, subscribers, a, a social network of 350 uh, increasingly engaged users, um, is now there's some green shoots to say, okay, maybe this business has righted itself. Maybe it's found kind of a, a little bit way forward from a product perspective. So if, if you're a Google and you're looking for uh, a social network to cobble onto your massive platform. Uh, maybe now you have a little bit more confidence in the business. You're just going to have to pay more than you would have three or six months ago. Paul Sweeney, how is it that for all previous quarters, I was always informed that the most important and only relevant number was how many monthly active users there are of Twitter? That actually declined, at least in the United States. It did. Why do investors now seem to throw out that, turn that into a footnote, and turn a $91 million profit after being a, pu- a being a public company for four years and a real company for 12? 
Why is it that that becomes the headline? I think the investors that are left in this stock have said, okay, we're, we're at 350 million users, the monthly active users. That ain't going to grow anymore. We're not going to be a billion-dollar user base like uh, Facebook or Instagram. What we are going to be is a much more engaged user base, and that's what we're going to pitch to advertisers, the fact that our users are more engaged. So we're not looking at monthly active users, but the bulls are looking at daily active users, which were up 12% year over year. That was the metric. That has become the metric that has kind of replaced monthly active users because the monthly active user story isn't very good. So that's the don't raise the bridge, lower the river exactly. idea. I exactly. see. Okay. And, it, and uh, we'll see. But for this quarter, that's that, that was enough. So who would buy it? You know, I don't know. Anybody, again, anybody who's looking for a big uh, social... Who, you know, it doesn't have a big social play. Uh, is that Google? Is that <clears throat> Apple? Um, Disney? Uh, possibly, possibly. But, you know, they've got enough on their plate now with trying to, to close $60 billion worth of assets from, from uh, News Corp. But, uh, you know, but it's now getting, uh, I think, probably too expensive for any traditional media company. I think now you're looking tech and you're just looking at tech who, somebody who doesn't have a big social platform per se. And, that, you know, again, the number one name that I hear most from investors is, is Google. Um, it's still you know, a, a relatively small acquisition for Google. Is Twitter a growth story? Uh, no. Um, right now we had 2% growth in revenue, and that was the first growth we've had in four years. So no, it's not because internet advertising is growing 15 to 20% a year, and they only Where? grew 2%. So it's an engagement story, and it's, you know, dumb, we'll see. Dumb question. Where's the advertising revenue? I'm on Twitter all the time, and I never see it. Where, where, I, Facebook, I see it. Yeah, it's, where is it? Uh, it's it's in the feed. Uh, maybe you're just not targeted by their advertisers. I don't know. Maybe you're not the target. <laughs> well, why target anybody that has lots of users? Uh, yeah, or and lots, lots of, of followers. I beg your pardon, uh, right? Of, yeah, I mean, does that make any sense? It's lots of disposable income. Yeah. So no, they're. I mean, they're uh, the advertisers are there, but the the advertisers that you really want to see are the big brand advertisers, the Coca Colas, the General Motors, and yeah. and they're not there. They're on Facebook. They're on right. Instagram because each of those platforms Snap. looks yeah not uh, yeah. Snap a little bit, but you know you got to be somewhere where you can get a billion, a billion five users, and and those opportunities yeah. are limited, and they're pretty much uh, you know YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, yeah. that kind of thing. Gina Martin Adams killed it yesterday. Can I just say she oh, was in here doing awesome. equity an yep. analysis in the heat of it all, and she just. I killed it. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much with Bloomberg Intelligence on uh, Twitter. With James Trevitas, you've got to outline your topics because we could go with the Admiral for an hour. And we will today on parades and then on the Olympics, Vice President Pence. Uh, and what we're doing with our two Koreas. And so we begin with James Trevitas. I do want to say that I wandered uh, a Pim uh, with the Beast, the new puppy of the house, by the bookshelves the other day, and there was the Leader's Bookshelf, which I really can't say enough about. It was my book of the summer uh, a few years ago, James Trevitas with 70 books uh, that you need to know from his book, The Leader's Bookshelf. I just can't say enough about the quality. Everybody in the leader's bookshelf, Admiral, paraded. And as you say in your wonderful essay, pushing against the president, uh, you enjoyed praying for rain at Annapolis, hoping like crazy you would not have to parade as a midshipman, didn't you? I did. And I can assure you all 4,000 members of the brigade of midshipmen hate to march in parades. No one likes them. So that's kind of reason one. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You're taking a 
long weekend away from all these troops who have to set up the parade route. They have to create the security. They have to move their tanks to Washington. They have to march. They have to clean it all up afterward. It's really not a good deal for the troops, Tom. But within your secondly, st- oh, please, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. Please, please, Admiral, go uh, ahead. Secondly, you know, this isn't huge money, but it's probably 20 to $30 million. We've probably got better use for that kind of funding. And thirdly, and I think this is most important, Tom, we're a big, powerful, capable military. We don't need to act like North Korea and put on these silly parades. Right. I just don't think it makes a lot of sense. Just an anecdote, folks. I enjoyed the 1968 Bastille Day Parade. Pim Fox, I got a glimpse of Charles de Gaulle. And it was a fragile France. They were coming out of World War II. They'd had uh, some challenging politics, and it was fraught with the fragility of France. Admiral, we don't have that fragility, do we? Not at all. And this, Tom, you have put your finger precisely on this. I think nations that need to show off, um, we've mentioned North Korea, we've mentioned France in those days. I think it's the third one to think about is the Soviet Union, which used to play the how big is my missile game, pushing it down the streets of Moscow. And it just is not what you have to do. We have quiet confidence. We have the most lethal military in the world. We don't need a parade. Admiral Stavridis, let's turn our attention now, if we can, to the Olympics and North and South Korea. Uh, The uh, younger sister of the North Korean leader is uh, scheduled to attend. They're going to do up close and personal with her. (laughs) Well, well, let, we'll see whether they do up close and personal with her. But I want to get your thoughts on whether this could indeed uh, mark some kind of change or at least a modest uh, improvement in the relationship between North and South Korea and therefore between the United States and North Korea. I think you've uh, correctly categorized it as modest. Um, There is a sliver of hope here, and we should uh, focus on it and see what can grow from this tiny little seed. Uh, And this, in the end, is the historic purpose of the Olympics. If you go back even to ancient Greece, this was a time when you stopped fighting, you came together, and sometimes uh, there can be positive results. I wouldn't overweight it. I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. Things will probably get better before they'll get worse again, if you will. But I think for the next uh, two, three weeks, there is a small opening, North Korea, South Korea. If we could bring the United States and China into the equation, go from two-party communication, if you will, to four-party, I think we'd have a chance of moving something here. Let's face it, in the end, all roads to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, lead through Beijing. I wonder if I could just turn your attention now. I know I'm kind of going off script, Tom, but I just have to draw on the Admiral's expertise because we have a NATO member, Turkey, that is Mm. involved in a conflict that in one way or another seems to be in direct opposition to U.S. stated policy. I wonder if you could just give us your thoughts about Turkey and whether that is a potential uh, point of conflagration that may end up being much more important than we currently believe. Uh, as you know, I spent four years as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, and I've operated with and commanded Turkish troops in combat. I want to start by saying, A, they are very capable and professional, and B, uh, they have an, a lot of capability, and C, they were contributors to the alliance. We had Turkish troops in Afghanistan, in Libya, in the Balkans, uh, in Syria, in fact, on missions there. So they have been historically quite good. Now, here's the problem. They are 
Turkey is deeply concerned about the Kurdish situation. They have what they perceive as Kurdish terrorists operating against them. And those Kurdish forces have become the object of a Turkish incursion in Syria. And it does put us in opposition with Turkey. And this is the biggest problem in the region because it could conceivably crack the alliance. So what should we do? We should be working with our Turkish allies, and they are our allies, to create kind of a buffer zone between Turkey and these Kurdish forces. I think that's possible to do. It's going to be very delicate diplomacy, and it'll require U.S. continued attention over the weeks and months ahead. Um, Admiral, I'm reading to Pim's uh, well-taken point on Turkey, Thomas Madden's wonderful one volume on Venice. And a few Mm -hmm. years ago, Venice was worried about controlling the eastern Mediterranean. How does our Navy move around the Mediterranean, the Bosphorus, and into the Black Sea? Can we just go where we want to go? To get into the Black Sea, Turkey controls, as you know, Tom, the the strait that leads into the Black Sea. Um, This is another reason that this is so important to keep Turkey um, on side in this alliance. The the, the strait is governed by what's called the Montreux Convention, which has limits on the size of ships and a number of very technical aspects. Um, But we're in a vastly better place than we were, say, in the 1500s when the Ottoman Empire, the predecessor of uh, today's Turkey, was battering the gates of Venice on uh, and battering the gates of Vienna. Yeah. We've defeated them in the ocean at Lepanto. Um, this is a, a situation we yeah. don't want to return to. We want to keep Turkey with in, us. In the Navy, did you ever have to do the thing where in your admiral's outfit you had to steer a gondola with that oar, you know, way up <laughs> off the ground? Of course I did, Tom. And I sang at the same time. And that's an important part of uh, learning to be an admiral. The politics of being an admiral. Venice 101. Yeah, I held it. I was holding his bags while he was doing it. I could just see Stravitas doing the gondola thing through the canals. Thank you, James Stravitas of Tufts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.